Hello, and welcome to The Flame Podcast, where we explore the future libraries, archives, and museums in excavation. My name is Patricia Moise, and I'm a Clear Mellon postdoc fellow at Grinnell College, located in Iowa, and I'm so happy you've joined us today. As a data curator of visual arts, I've been working with Grinnell College and the Waterloo Center of the Arts to create a digital catalog of the largest public collection of Haitian arts in the world. My work in art and cultural heritage sparked my interest in understanding how the term Creole is being defined and preserved throughout different cultural communities. Thank you, Petrushka. And I am A.J. Turnator, Humanities and Digital Scholarship Librarian at MIT Libraries. In this podcast series, we analyze the interviews we conducted with those who work in the cultural heritage world of museums, libraries, galleries, and archives, as well as scholars who are also a part of that world. In this first series of Flame, we are analyzing and elevating reoccurring topics for the interviews we've conducted. The full interviews are inspiring in their own right and will be available on our project website. The title of our fourth episode is so impactful that I had to create a special delivery. Give, in addition to, what we've had so many years of, take, quote unquote. We'll be talking about the lack of contextual details for BIPOC materials in U.S. collections, which render them practically invisible. We will also hear our two guests talk about how collections are formed at the institutions they work. This episode is about the connections between institutions from the perspective of this term, elite collecting. We're analyzing the interviews of Kimberly Tony and Aaron Miller, who both work at institutions whose collections are originally put together by elite white men of property and standing in society in the area we call New England today. The first of those historical figures is Isaiah Thomas, who lived between 1749 and 1831. He is the founder of the American Antiquarian Society, which is in Worcester, Massachusetts. The society was designed to be a learned society, a national institution dedicated to preserving the written record of the United States, according to the society's website. Isaiah Thomas founded the society in 1812. He was a Revolutionary War patriot, a printer, that is, a publisher. His interests laid the foundation of the library of the society. We spoke with Kimberly Tony from the American Antiquarian Society. The second elite figure is Joseph Allen Skinner. The collection he put together is now part of the Mount Holyoke College Art Museum in South Hadley, Massachusetts. The museum reflects Skinner's interests. It's a collection that he put together during his lifetime that could be described as a cabinet of curiosities and a relatively large cabinet at that since the collection has about 7,000 items reflective of Skinner's interests and the world he lived in. Skinner was born in 1862 and he died in 1946. We spoke with Aaron Miller from Mount Holyoke College Art Museum. Now these two institutes are about one hour and 30 minute drive from each other, both in Massachusetts on or near traditional Nipmuc lands. Their founding is about a century apart with the Skinner Museum being the newer collection but they are each interesting, in some ways unique witnesses to their own times. The closest famous analog to the Joseph Allen Skinner Museum, though at an even larger scale, is the famous Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford, England. August Pitt Rivers, who lived from 1827 to 1900, 
was an officer in the British Army. He had collected over 22,000 items during his lifetime. The key is that Rivers' work fell between these two figures. His life straddles the lives of both Isaiah Thomas and Joseph Allen Skinner. I am bringing all of this analogy up because these similarities are important in terms of understanding the transatlantic connection and also to shed some light on how and by whom items and collections were brought together during the 18th century and beyond on both sides of the Atlantic. We will be discussing the American Antiquarian Society and the Joseph Allen Skinner Collection, but we will also want to underscore the fact that they are part of a larger world of essentially colonial European practices. They reflect aspects of the individual's ambitions and interests, and they are part of colonial history, culture, science, and technology. In any case, um, that was a long side note to say that museums and libraries, whose founding is based on elite collecting like these, abound on both sides of the Atlantic and beyond. We want to think about why it's important to understand the histories of museums and libraries we work with when we do research about the past. We also want to pose this question about items in collections. Why are they in museums? Our interviewees today are Kimberly Tony, Head of Reader Services and Director of Indigenous Initiatives at the American Antiquarian Society, and Aaron Miller, the Associate Curator of Visual and Material Culture at Mount Holyoke College Art Museum. We asked both Kim and Aaron about their journey and how they ended up in their current position. Let's start with Kim, who is Black and Nipmuc heritage. I ended up in Worcester because I'm from Worcester, like I very deeply embedded in the history in Worcester. I am a Nipmuc person uh, myself. So, um, you know, I sort of feel like a very strong connection and feel like I belong here, but um, I, did go away to, to undergraduate and graduate school. Um, I have a an undergraduate degree in art history and a graduate degree in historic preservation. Um, I went to the University of Delaware for that. Um, and upon finishing my degree, I sort of thought that I might work for a state historic preservation office or in a museum or something like that. Um, I came back to Worcester after finishing my graduate degree and there was an opening at the American Antiquarian Society. Aaron is from the same area as well, and he ended up working in Western Massachusetts, where he is from. Here's Aaron. I pursued a career in archaeology for for quite a long time. You know, I was I've, I've worked on a lot of different types of sites, but I kind of gravitated towards seventeenth, uh, eighteenth century, um, mostly Anglo-European, British colonial sites, and. Um, so I work primarily in Maryland and then in Newfoundland, Canada, and um, kind of came back home, finishing up the PhD and uh, sort of re-engaged with some of the museum network in, in this, this part of the area in the Connecticut River Valley. And um, position opened up at, at Mount Holyoke, um, at, at the Art Museum and the Skinner Museum. Um, and uh, so that, I guess that was about 10 years ago. So then how was the American Antiquarian Society, which is the third historical society in the United States and the first one with national scope founded? Let's hear it from Kim. She emphasizes that the American Antiquarian Society, the AAS, is national in scope overall and has some collections with a New England bent to them. 
so founded by one individual named Isaiah Thomas, who was a printer um, living through, lived through the Revolutionary War, um, was a patriot himself, um, probably participated in things like the Boston Tea Party, um, ended up in Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, essentially to um, hide away from the British who were going to come and confiscate his printing press and make it hard for him to uh, rally uh, other settlers around the, the freedom cause at the time. Um, so, yeah, he established the Antiquarian Society as um, someone who wanted to, I guess, preserve the history of this sort of the establishment of this settler, this new nation that he had um, lived through, you know, the fight for, I suppose. Um, the society's mission is to collect, preserve, and make available anything printed in British North America um, up to before 1876, but in some cases up through 1900. Um, and um, so the society's scope is national um, and there are uh, close to 4 million items in the collection. And these are things um, from books uh, to newspapers. We have a graphic arts collection, um, which is sort of anything ephemeral, anything that's not a book or a newspaper, <laughs> um, but also beyond just printed material. We also have a, a robust collection of manuscripts. Um, although that collection focuses more specifically on New England sources rather than being more national in scope. The collection started based on his own personal library. Um, and I also was going to say that there were some objects sort of accessioned into the collection early on that the society has since um, deaccessioned um, sort of around the turn of the 20th century. But all kinds of things that you can imagine that a, uh, a library maybe should or should not have. Mount Holyoke College's collections, on the other hand, started with the seminary. The Joseph Allen Skinner collection became a part of the college campus in 1946 after Skinner's death. You will hear Aaron talk about two museums at the college. The Skinner Museum is one of the two. Kim said all kinds of things that a library should or should not have. Let's think about her statement while we hear from Aaron. Because we have the two museums, there's so many stories there. There's so many different histories. Uh, you know, the first collections... You know, the seminary, which became Mount Holyoke College. Um, you know, the first collections came in in the 18, 1830s, 1840s. A lot of those were connected to some of the missionary work that was happening, so the focus of the seminary at that point. Um, you know, since then, there have been things, you know, many things given by alums. So it's, it's two museums. Um, so the Mount Holyoke College Art Museum and then the Joseph Allen Skinner Museum, which is kind of under the umbrella of the art museum and um, you know the the art museums formed in the 1870s and you know the Skinner Museum sort of later 19th early 20th century collection from one individual um, so you know between the two um, it's pretty encyclopedic collection so it's a real mix of objects from I think pretty much every inhabited continent and um, a mix of fine art um, you know, from antiquities to very contemporary works, um, you know, archaeological materials from different continents, um, natural history objects too. So it, it, it's really a mix, um, which is perfect for a teaching museum. Aaron refers to the Skinner as an eccentric teaching museum, perfect for teaching, I guess, with a lot of diverse materials. What do we know about Joseph Olin Skinner in particular? The most detailed description of his life that I could find was in an obituary published by the AAS. 
We know that his father was born in London and was a prominent silk and satin manufacturer. And his son, Joseph Allen, continued the family business in New England. He had other businesses like directorship of the New England Telephone and Telegraph Company. The museum reflects his interest in minerals, fossils, firearms, ceramics, indigenous cultural material. With the Joseph Allen Skinner Museum, you have one sort of, you know, local wealthy industrialist who was uh, putting together what his idea of a museum was. So it's, there's a big focus on kind of American history and local history, but also this kind of his world travels. So you, in some ways, you, there you have this fossil museum, you know, a fossilized museum of what one person in one time uh, thought was important. Aaron says that the collection reflects Skinner's interest. That's perfectly true. It also reflects the interests of an industrialist at the time, interest in the land, its minerals, and the people who were native to the land. There's much to discuss about what Skinner knew about those topics and how he and his non-native contemporaries approached each topic. Indeed, there really are many interesting similarities in both interviews. The stories about how the Antiquarian Society and the Allen Skinner Museum collection came to be and the collections themselves are interesting, but we can't forget our first three words. So in every interview we conduct for this podcast, we ask our participants to choose three words or phrases that best describe the work that they do. This question often takes interviewees a while to mull over and is sometimes expressed through multiple clips. In previous episodes, you'll remember, we summarized their choices here. But since both Kim and Aaron's answers were straightforward, we wanted to give it to you directly from them. First, Kim. I think they would be access, engagement, and reclamation. Aaron's phrases are focused on the topic of conversation. I would like to think that, you know, I, I help facilitate conversations. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in kind of the, the stories behind objects. The, you know, it's kind of conversations with objects. It's conversations between people. You know, we're part of uh, Mount Holyoke College, and you know that's really sort of the focus of what we're doing is, um, you know, the classwork, teaching with art and material culture. Um, so, you know, the conversations that come up when you get students and faculty and other people in, in front of objects. Yes, conversation with objects in the classroom setting and new insights that those conversations bring to the object themselves is an important theme. I would say the most important theme to your interview with Aaron. Conversations, yes, for sure. From three words, let's move deeper into some of the topics that both our guests brought up. We asked Kim and Aaron to comment on the formation of the collections and also to talk about the content of the collections a bit. On the issue of collection content, both Kim and Aaron brought up the 1990 Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, NACPRA for short. Both collections either have or in the past had Native American content, including human remains in their collections. It might come as a surprise to some listeners that human remains are part of some museum collections. There are two parts to this discussion. First is why are they there in the first place? And second is repatriation. How do they return to their descendant communities? NACPRA is, in a way, the federal government's partial attempt to repatriate human remains and culturally significant objects 
back to Native American communities. NACPRA became law in 1990, so 31-plus years ago. Its goal is, quote, to provide for the return of Native American ancestral remains and cultural material to Native American tribes, unquote, in the continental U.S., Alaska, and Hawaii. It seems from listening to Aaron that NAGPRA plays an important role in reclamation of some of the cultural artifacts in the Joseph Allen Skinner Museum. What is the content of the law overall? Well, you summarized the intent of the law well. Uh, return ancestral and cultural remains in federally funded museums and agencies back to the descendant tribes. In practice, things panned out quite differently over the course of 31 plus years with the good, the bad, and the ugly. The law requires federal agencies or museums and institutions that receive federal funds to prepare an inventory of human remains and associated funerary artifacts, that is, items interred with the individuals and sacred or cultural patrimony objects. The inventory prepared the grounds for institutions to return remains to descendant tribes when it was possible to identify them. Now, NACPRA applies only to federally recognized tribes, which is one of its shortcomings. Associated funerary objects were not required to be returned with the human remains, and that's another big gap. The law was revised, amended over the years, and it has done much good but a lot remains, of course, to be done. The most recent Senate hearing in February 2022 mentions that 42% of human remains, which corresponds to approximately 200,000 individuals, have been returned to their ancestral descendants, and 70% of affiliated funerary objects interred with the individuals have also been returned. 70% corresponds to 2.5 million affiliated funerary objects. You're saying that before NAGPRA, approximately half a million human remains were in museums and other institutions that received federal funding. These figures are approximated and they are astounding. And we have to remember that these approximations cover what we have come to know through federally funded institutions or agencies only. We would need to add information from states and privately funded institutions as well to get a bigger picture. From the perspective of tribes, all of the individual remains must be returned, not just those in federally funded institutions. Now, there are many tribes, hundreds in the United States, that are not recognized by federal government, but they are impacted by all of the issues that the law intends to address. Kim is Black and Nipmuc. And her tribe is one of the many non-federally recognized tribes. That said, there is a mechanism for repatriation for non-federally recognized tribes through the NAGPRA Review Committee. But that process can be expensive, complicated, and could take a long time. Most importantly, it is required that museums committed to repatriation and actively work with federal recognized tribes to make repatriation happen. For example, Aaron mentioned that he recently completed a repatriation of an ancestor on behalf of Mount Holyoke College. They repatriated to the Stockbridge-Munsee community, a federally recognized tribe who, through conversation directly with Nipmuc, had the college physically repatriate the ancestor to the Nipmuc people instead. So it looks like a lot depends on museums museums to take ownership of the repatriation process and commit to working with the tribes. 
So institutions, universities, or private institutions like the Mount Holyoke College needed to abide by the law because they received federal funds. But such human remains to the indigenous communities, such as their ancestors, their relatives, or objects on other private lands or at private institutions or state lands or institutions are left outside the law. American Antiquarian Society is also a private institution, so NAGPRA didn't apply to it. Is that correct? I asked Kim this exact question. It's about receiving federal funding, not about being a private institution per se. She said that the American Antiquarian Society deaccessioned some artifacts in its collections about a century before NAGPRA. She mentioned that many of these deaccessioned items went to places like the Smithsonian and the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology of Harvard. NAGPRA applies to the Peabody Museum. And NAGPRA-like law, passed in 1989, applies to the Smithsonian. So its collections are covered as well. A testimony in the 2009 Senate hearing mentions 721 museums nationwide that fell under NAGPRA. In all of this, there is the glaring problem of culturally unidentified human remains or artifacts. Federal agencies and institutions that receive federal funding needed to identify indigenous content in their collections, and they were given a five-year deadline with possibility of extension to complete the task. But some institutions, due to lack of insufficient time, resources, staffing deficits, etc., labeled human remains and cultural artifacts culturally unidentifiable. To give you an inkling of the size of this horror, Harvard Peabody Museum is reported to have over 6,586 culturally unidentifiable individuals in its collection. Back in 1995, they couldn't meet the federal inventory deadline, and they still retain over 6,500 individuals. The number gives me a pause. The fact that they are in a museum should give everyone a pause. Let's contextualize this a bit more. The 2022 Senate hearings mentions that only 21% of museums subject to NAPRA have actually returned all of the Native American human remains under their control. I think we should view all of these in the wider historical context of forced removals, allotment policies, removal of children into boarding schools. Native Americans were recognized as citizens in 1924, almost 60 years after the Civil War, at least on paper, recognized the citizenship of African-American men. Native Americans' First Amendment rights were at least, again, on paper, recognized with the American Indian Religious Freedom Act, but as late as 1978. I'm mentioning these to give us a bit of a sense of the broader context of what we're looking at, so we have a better understanding of how that history actually played out in the galleries, libraries, and museum space. I will also mention this important point, again, as, a, as an additional contextual information. There's a tight link between the indigenous human remains and the development of some academic and scientific fields in the United States, especially anthropology and medicine. In the 19th century, indigenous peoples fully became the experimental subjects of these fields. The 1989 law, I just call it the Smithsonian law, mentions 4,000 indigenous remains from battlefields and burial sites, which were in the Army Medical Museum and transferred to the Smithsonian. 
the Smithsonian may have been a catch-all place for some institutions like the American Antiquarian Society to send deaccessioned human remains to. The Smithsonian is also known to have a large collection of skulls. This has connection to the history of eugenics, which aimed to scientifically, quote-unquote, establish the superiority of the white race. All of this history underlies why half a million human remains are in museums in the first place. NAGPRA has systemic loopholes, has limited oversight, and there is little means to enforcing the law. As a result, up until recently, there has not been much interinstitutional pushback against institutional impulses to conserve the status quo. Harvard University, we were told in 2021, is surveying all 22,000 or more sets of human remains in the Peabody, the medical school's Warren Anatomical Museum, and its other collections, particularly those of people who were marginalized or enslaved in the United States and abroad. It's not just the Smithsonian or Harvard Peabody or the Museum of Natural History in New York or the Field Museum in Chicago. There are hundreds of museums that can't or won't follow the intent of the law because of flaws in transparency, accountability, complexity of the process. The 2009 testimony of Colin Kitten, the first native Hawaiian on the NACRA Review Committee, basically said that the federal government lost track of the big picture and never really set the NACRA process up for success. But we don't want to lose sight of the fact that when institutions commit to repatriation, they find a way to do the right thing. Yes, but unfortunately, it's just 21% of museums. So you are saying that remaining loopholes in the law enables us to see in reality that the majority of these institutions end up yielding to their foundational purpose and impulses. Okay, I want to bring up California's NAGPRA called CalNAGPRA which introduced a model process in 2001. It works parallel to NACPRA, and it aims to cover some of the areas left unaddressed by the federal law. It significantly alters the relationship between the UC system and the California museums with California tribes. It was amended in 2020 to, quote, strengthen call NACPRA for non-federal recognized California Native American tribes, unquote. And so it rightfully ignores the legal and fiscal divides among tribes. It also introduces a consultative approach to repatriation and puts the onus on institutions to keep consulting with the tribes and resolve differences and disputes until a resolution is reached. From the perspective of the UC system, they are required to consult with California tribes and update their inventories and summaries including those that were previously classified as culturally unidentifiable. It is also a sea change that Call NAGPRA welcomes tribal traditional knowledge as evidence, and if there is conflicting evidence, it provides deference to traditional knowledge. I hope other state legislators are listening. Right. As I understand it, California is the only state that attempts to close some of the important gaps in terms of NACRA, and it also moves the dial in the right direction in terms of the law, giving deference toward indigenous knowledge systems and cultures. Still looking at the U.S. overall, the remaining gaps are big, 
as is attested in the most recent Senate hearing in January 2022 on NACPRA, just look at how difficult it is to reclaim what was once taken. I'm referring to Kim's third word one more time, reclaim. It's important shortcomings aside, my reading of Aaron's interview suggests that NACPRA actually did make a difference in compelling many institutions to take a look at their collections, identify indigenous content, which probably up to that point remained less known, misinterpreted, anything in between. And that most importantly, NACPRA started a useful conversation between museums and indigenous communities. Let's listen to Aaron. So I think going backwards a little bit, um, you know, one of the things that we've done in you know over the last decade is come into compliance with NAGPRA. Um, so you know, kind of make sure that um, you know communities that are represented are aware that those objects are are here. Um, you know, sort of filing with National NAGPRA, uh, kind of really beginning the process. And um, you know, so before that, um, you really didn't see objects from you know, Indigenous American communities. Know, North America um, represented in the galleries. So, you know, since coming into compliance and, you know, sort of be beginning to reach out more to different communities that are represented, um, we've begun to move more of those materials into, you know, sort of the American gallery or other, you know, special exhibition spaces. Aaron seems to think that the 1990s is the beginning of a trend towards more of an engagement with the indigenous materials in collections. NAGPRA plays a role in it, but also that's around the time that a new scholarship begins to mature as well that takes a critical look at content in museums and library collections. You asked Aaron about teaching with collections and he referred to working with Professor Christine Zulucia, who brought her classes into the collection back when she was teaching at Mount Holyoke College. He also talked about the Native American Indigenous Study Group in this context. He mentions networks, and that's really important to rely on such networks and to bring them into the museum. Here's Aaron again. You know, I, I think you know, to think about, um, you know, some of our interaction with different, you know, source communities, um, I think there've been a lot of different ways. A lot of those have been through NAGPRA. Um, uh, Christine and you know other, other professors at Mount Holyoke have ongoing relationships with some of the communities in the Northeast. Um, there's a Native American Indigenous Studies group that's kind of a five college group um, in Mass and Amherst and Smith and Hampshire. Um, so you know, there, there are many faculty who um, sort of teach within sort of that broader area or you know, our community members themselves. Um, and so there, there are networks here. Um, these are networks that I, I wasn't necessarily a part of before I came, um, but you know, through, through NAGPRA, I mean, you know, just last week um, working with the community in Alaska to give them kind of a list of objects that, um, that might be of interest and, you know, they're going to share information about those objects, whether they come from their community or not. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're learning in that way too. Um, you know, we, we don't have the expertise on staff. So, you know, wherever possible, we're, we're looking to find um, you know, ways to interact and learn more. Sometimes that comes through classes. Um, you, know, you never know, uh, you know, 
someone walking the gallery might be able to tell us more about something. So again, changes in the federal law, a new approach in scholarship, increased connections with Indigenous communities and scholars. All of that seems to have driven the effort to bring a critical lens to collections and, of course, an understanding of Indigenous content through relationships with tribes. All of that combined opened the path for repatriation. Aaron's last sentence, though, that they don't have the expertise, that the expertise needs to come from the outside, is exactly on point. We will get into the impact that classes seem to have had on museums in a bit, but I wanted to bring up what Kim said on the same point. Recall the clip earlier where she referred to American Antiquarian Society deaccessioning non-print items in its collections while the society itself became the chief repository for print history. Let's listen to Kim. The earliest sort of um, records or donations books for the library detail all kinds of things. Um, of course, um, uh, indigenous material, so things like arrowheads or, or tools, um, there are also still things that we held on to. There's a, a vial of tea from the Boston Tea Party that has sort of a little um, lore attached to it. Um, <laughs> there's some furniture that we've retained, um, but a lot of the early, we had a mummy at one point. So <laughs> a lot of these early things have been, um, as I said, deaccessioned, but live um, in places like the Smithsonian, um, the Peabody um, Museum, places like that. Um, but yeah, the, the AS's rec own um, archival records detail the types of things that we had in the collection and also where they went. So at least there's a trail um, to follow there. There's a trail to follow there. And I hope Kim follows where that trail leads to. But so Kim is saying that some of the materials in the AAS collection were deaccessioned a century or so before NAGPRA, but there's at least a record that they were there once and where they went to. Kim also talked about how uncomfortable it is for institutions to go through that process of repatriation and deaccessioning, and that different institutions are at different stages of dealing with the effects of their past collecting. Again, remember, for NAGPRA, about 20% of museums did that, and 80% have not. Connections and conversations were a recurring theme in Aaron's interview as well. And I am left thinking that those are the initiatives that are extending the boundaries of our knowledge. So I would say that anything that helps generate more of those connections with indigenous communities, indigenous and non-indigenous scholars, students, libraries, and museums will help close the giant gap in our collective knowledge and build the path for a healing process. I think the idea of repatriation is something that um, is like hard, like uncomfortable for, for institutions to think about or deal with. And I think that sort of NAGPRA is not something that's really up until now come to bear on archival collections or libraries. Um, but the conversations are happening. There are um, people working. So um, I wouldn't say that there's an example in our institution specifically of anything that we've discussed about in terms of repatriation. Um, I, but I wouldn't say that there's nothing there that doesn't warrant um, a conversation. Um, and, and hopefully those conversations in the way that, that we have tried to sort of start to build bridges and connections and have conversations. There's nothing there that doesn't warrant a conversation. 
Those are powerful words. And Kim had more to say about archives and libraries and museums in general that I think we need to share here. First, let's start with libraries, archives, and museums as space. AAS can struggle in some ways with, with letting people know that we are free and open to the public and that we're a resource, especially in the local community, for anyone to come in and do work. Um, but I think there's kind of like a, I don't know, just an uneasiness or like an unaware um, notion from people outside, like just driving by in Worcester, you see this building with kind of a Greek temple facade and it looks like it's not for you. This has been a reoccurring theme in the series. Kim notes how intimidating even the facade of museums and libraries can be and how alienating in some communities. It's almost like these institutions collectively have a banner that says, this place is not for you. And there's more. I think of all the people we interviewed, Kim referenced the emotional labor of being in those colonial spaces. And so I want to turn to Kim again here. The ways that I really try to connect to um, students or researchers, um, and whether it's in person or even virtually now in this time, um, in a way that like lets them know that this place is also for you that there's also stuff here for you that I, I sort of recognize um, the sort of emotional labor that can come with like working in these spaces and, and doing this sort of research when you're, um, I don't know, reading through materials on particular topics that can be hard to think about or deal with when you're a person of color. And then I think she does explain what that labor is a bit more in the interview with you. I think a lot about what she says about archives in general as a space, as a living institution that intentionally separates BIPOC communities from their land, language, and culture. I was thinking that in order to come close to an understanding of what she means, we really need to imagine another archive. Because for indigenous communities, an archival institution, much like the boarding schools, can be a genocidal place that took their ancestors' remains, language, and culture away. After all, Libraries, museums, and archives were the educational arm of the colonial enterprise. I think a lot about how archives have separated us from ourselves. So speaking as a, as a Native person in terms of like the physical, the physical building has separated my ancestors from their land, from me, from access to the land, but also the ways that like um, these collections are built and are um, sort of servicing a public that for a long time has not been a public that includes me or my ancestors or people who look like me. I think the key there is lack of reciprocity, one-sided taking for a long time. Earlier we talked about NAPRA. I do hope that we will get to a place in which the principle of reciprocity determines the relationships with indigenous communities. I think part of the reciprocity stuff too is, is having conversations about repatriation or how things, examining how things ended up in your collection and whether or not it's cool for them to still be there. Both Kim and Aaron mentioned a relatively new trend in the library and museum world towards reinterpreting their collections. And they both mentioned that critical reinterpretation happens often in the classroom space. Students are more and more exposed to a new interpretation of history, and that it is changing the way libraries and museums are seeing their collection. What's interesting is that both Kim and Aaron mentioned that they are seeing more of this critical lens in the classroom space. 
And that's what's helping give museums a new language to talk about their collections. It's remarkable how many times our other interviewees mentioned the importance of students and interactions with students in our series. It was the interview with Kim and Aaron that kind of made me realize that a powerful wave of that change is actually coming not internally from museums and libraries, but it is coming from students, instructors, and from the community. Interesting point that an important section of the push comes from the outside. If that's true, the most public-facing employees in the libraries and museums probably bring that change into these spaces. In the case of our guests, that makes absolute sense because both Aaron and Kim are in very public-facing positions at their institutions. Aaron is curator at a teaching museum. Kimberly is the head of reader services at the American Antiquarian Society. I don't know if 10 years ago I would have been in a class where we're really talking about uh, dispossession and removal um, and using words like genocide and things in the class where I think now, um, not that I've class visits have been really different in the last year or so, but um, I feel like there's more, um, some some instructors are at least doing more to think more critically and actually use the language that is appropriate to discuss. Indeed, that seems to be the case based on the folks we have spoken with. Aaron makes a similar point in your conversation with him. Yes, he does. Uh, Professor Christine DeLucia, who used to teach at Mount Holyoke College, refers in one of her articles that working with Aaron on Mount Holyoke collections led, I'm quoting now, to a deeper knowledge of the collection's relevance for Native American and colonial histories, and that working together with the collections allowed the class to deploy selected objects to eliminate issues of caretaking, ethics, and knowledge formation. I asked Aaron what it meant to work with Professor DeLucia from his and the museum's perspective. And here's what he said. We still work together on different things. Um, you know, we, we came to Mount Holyoke around the same time. So we were kind of learning the collections at the same time. Um, and, you know, she was very interested in engaging with, with many different types of objects at, at both museums. And, um, you know, I, th I think in, in part her her interest and you know that there's also a moment where um, the Skinner Museum was coming online more with the larger teaching with art focus of the art museum. Um, you know, I think together we we began to think about what was there and learn about what was there, and also think more about um, you know, how, how do we talk about these things and steward these things and, and you know, what else needs to be done? Um, you know, because prior to, um, you know, about 10 years ago, I think when we both um, more or less arrived, um, you know, many collections just weren't really being utilized the way they are today or acknowledged the way they are today. Aaron refers to collections not being utilized enough, say about a decade ago. Kim touched on something that might explain a part of why that was the case, labeling things. A lot of the time, they just had no idea what was in the collections. You could encounter a mummy, a basket, a funerary item, a mineral, all lumped together. But instead, the lack of complexity of labels and the way things are organized, it's a reflection of how little BIPOC-relevant collections were 
actually understood by the institutions they are in. Because there's so many rules around how we describe things, it can often sort of flatten or erase the identity of indigenous communities because we only have this particular term that the Library of Congress approves to use and, and it's not um, prioritizing or privileging or giving any credence to the specific sort of like nationhood and identity that each individual um, like sovereign indigenous nation holds. So instead we have collections like Indians of North America or subjects like Indians of North America, which you know right off the bat that there's like a lot of flattening um, and sort of, yeah, hiding of things. And I think that um, also, so we can sometimes take those, that very prescriptive language or that um, sort of top down, like you must use this language to describe the collection in your catalog. And then that gets transferred to how we organize things as well. So um, we'll have labels, some institutions might have labels that are just Indians of North America on a collection. And in, instead of sort of doing the work to be like, oh, is this, does this belong in like the Nipmuc section? Does this belong in the Narragansett section? No, we're just gonna clump them all together. Clumping together is actually a very good indication of how little the people who do the clumping together know about the topic that they are generalizing about, right? How big is this problem and where do we begin to correct it? Well, the problem is huge. And where do we begin to correct is um, that question, I think, should be the guiding topic of the next Flame series. We need to have the people in the glam world and in the polity politics worlds who have begun to answer that question you asked, what do we do to address this huge problem? Be the hosts in the next series. Great idea. Well, I failed to ask both Kim and Aaron directly what changes have triggered this new development. Kim implies that instructors are coming in and teaching a new way of looking at the past. When you're looking at genocide, label it correctly. For sure, teachers have definitely been a source of change. That's clear in both their comments. So in a way, that's coming from the outside into libraries and museums, right? When they look internally, we both know that libraries and museums are not very nimble institutions by design. So internally, when they talk about what changes needs to happen, what do they say? The person who talked more about this need was Kim, and she had explicit things to say about that topic. But overall, I was left with, wow, there's so much to do, and many institutions have not even started to move things in the right direction yet. Such as? I don't know which would have to come first, but I would say, following Kim, reciprocity first, building relationships with indigenous scholars and communities first, tending those relationships like you tend donor relationships first, hiring diverse staff, building programming accordingly, all of that first. I really like that the first item to focus on is reciprocity. Trying to do things in ways that make it clear um, that these that the society holds things that are useful and that there, there is an immediate use and a practical use for them within the communities. Um, but I think it's a very complicated issue because it has not been a reciprocal relationship for hundreds of years. So I don't, I don't know how others would respond to that. I guess my hope is that um, people will begin to see that there is on both sides. So on the AAS internal, internally at AAS, but also outside from the community that there's sort of, that they are welcome to use these resources, that they are accessible to them in ways that they maybe haven't felt in the past. So here Kim is referring to reciprocity as an access issue. 
Let the communities use these collections to make them feel welcome. It's hard, and this won't happen by itself. It requires administrative support. It requires administration to value things other than those they have been valuing so far. That's a game changer. Its potential ramifications are huge. Another implied work that needs doing is to connect with scholars and their networks. Aaron mentioned his work with Christine DeLucia, and he'd mentioned earlier the Native American Indigenous Study Group. And Kim emphasized likewise in multiple parts of the conversation that the connection and the conversation started, and she has been coordinating some of those initiatives that will hopefully someday end up generating relationships that are based on equal footing. It's really important just to just to start those conversations at least, um, and then get to a place where I think where I hope that all institutions, AAS and others alike, would be in a place where their leadership is is willing to have discussions at the very least um, about some the problematic nature of how things some things end up in the collection and how to um, be more reciprocal in their relationships with local communities on whose homelands they exist and things like that. I will also say I'm um, just recently coordinating at AASC at what we're calling the Indigenous Engagement Initiative, um, whereby we're trying to connect, we're trying to make um, connections between AAS and the local community, specifically the Nipmuc community, um, but also look for opportunities to support scholarship in the field of Indigenous studies as a whole, um, and whether that's through programming or um, you know scholarship support and things like that. So we have, um, convened an advisory committee. So we have people who help us sort of talk through these issues and get us, um, as I say, we're just in the beginning stages, but I hope we'll get us to these places where we're having conversations. Yeah. So Kim mentions the Indigenous Engagement Initiative and maybe the early beginnings of an advisory committee at the American Antiquarian Society. So if the seeds Kim is spreading takes root at the AAS, as we hope that they will, we will expect to see increasing numbers of initiatives. Works coming out based on the AAS's collection, highlighting heretofore unknown aspects of history. Aaron is also working to make important strides in that direction. We attribute some of that development to the immediate collections that the museum has with classes, students, and instructors. Some seem to date back to NAGPRA. But of course, this type of world change is rarely based on one thing or person. It's a system change, isn't it? Yes, and I think I want to end with us pointing at the urgency of putting money and resources in support of these new connections between GLAM institutions and BIPOC communities, not as a thing of preference, but as a dire need at this inflection point in time, as we're in 2022. A real commitment to reciprocity with institutional support behind it needs to generate the new strategic tools of libraries, museums, and archives. So reciprocity and time, I think um, one of my coworkers sort of put it to me this way and thinking about the work and feeling like hurry up and wait is hard um, and we have to wait for everything all the time, but it's also like in the ways that institutions will court a big donor for years and years and years to sort of get to that, to get to a point where the big donor wants to give them a lot of money. I feel like you need to sort of think about relationships with communities in these ways too, that it, it takes a long time to cultivate any kind of relationship, but you also have to be in a place where you're willing to um, 
meet the needs of the audience or the constituency or the historically um, oppressed, uh, marginalized uh, people, peoples um, in a way that's not not prioritizing like you meeting your end goal or checking a box or feeling like you can pat yourself on the back. It's a lot of times it has to be the work that's done behind the scenes, which I think is harder to do at institu institutions because they want to be able to sort of write a report or a press release or something to say they're doing this stuff, but you actually have to take years and years of time to do stuff that doesn't warrant a, a press release or that isn't um, in order to build those relationships. Yes. And it's time. I think a lot of it is about um, institutions thinking more about meeting meeting people where they are, but also not continuing to sort of just being in a in a relationship that is um, give in addition to we've had so many years of take. <laughs> so, um, and I, you know, I, sometimes I feel like I don't get. I don't get paid enough to think through like the how of all, all that. I just know like you can do this by doing X, Y, Z and however you get it done is however you get it done. Another evocative excerpt to end on. The writing on the wall is now clear. Reciprocity, relationships, conversations and putting money and resources into the staff and programs that will support and grow access to collections is the only way. Glam administrators everywhere, we know that this is hard work and we thank you for listening. I hope they are listening. That was our guests, Kimberly Tony and Aaron Miller. You can listen to the full interviews with Kim and Aaron and learn more about their work on our website. For this episode, we would like to thank Ray Gold and Matthew Sisk for reviewing the NACPA-related sections. Dr. Ray Gold is NIPMAC and the Executive Director of Indigenous Studies Initiative at Brown University. Dr. Matthew Sisk is GIS Anthropology Librarian at Hesburgh Libraries in the University of Notre Dame. We also thank Bruna Ferris, Special Collections and Archives Assistant at Fisk University for her insightful edits. The remaining airs are ours. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>